Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Franny Benali. This is Klaus Lundekram. I'm Matt Letizia. And you're listening to In That Number. Here is Letizia. with me, Kevin, the Moscow Mush Milverton, and Ray Hunt. Find me on Twitter at Moscow Mush, and my co-host Ray Hunt at Ray Hunt 84 Follow the show at Number Podcasts on Twitter, in that Number Podcasts on Instagram and Facebook. If you've got any questions for the show, if you can be bothered, send us an email to inthatnumberpodcasts at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Share, subscribe, and give us good vibes. Let's go. Welcome to a very special episode of In That Number. We have no Saints games to chat over this week. Me and Kevin thought we'd bring in a special guest. Today, we shall be chatting with former captain Dean Hammond. But before we bring him in, let's get in the Moscow mush. Kevin Milverton. Kevin, how are you feeling? Um, a little nervous, but it's our second Saints captain now mm. on the show. Uh, yeah, Dean Hammond's kind of a, kind of a big deal. He is, he is a big deal. Are you, um, are you aroused this time? <laughs> uh, <laughs> ask me afterwards. I mean, he's, he's a very, very fit man. <laughs> yes, he is. Give us, give us a slice of hand. Yes. Okay, let's bring him in then, shall we? Let's. 
Now it is our absolute pleasure to bring in our former midfielder, a player that signed in difficult times for the club, but enjoyed nothing but success with us, capturing the Johnson's Faint Trophy in his first season, and then back-to-back promotions to the Premier League. Would you please welcome former captain Dean Hammond. Dean, very, very warm welcome to In That Number. Good evening, guys. Thank you for the uh, the nice introduction. That was very nice of you. Um, yeah, I'm good, thank you. Very good. Looking forward to speaking to you both. Yeah, yeah. thanks for coming on, Dean. Uh, yeah, it's, it's our pleasure. Our second uh, Saints captain and... Uh, a very positive period to talk about as well. Yeah, you've been you've been on quite a few podcasts because um, I, I do like listening to podcasts myself. So I thought I'd give a listen to um, a podcast that you were on, and there's there's been quite a lot. I mean, I found at least twenty. I couldn't get through listening to all of them, but um, yeah, I mean, you're a big fan of podcasts yourself. I am actually. Yeah, I really enjoy the podcast. Um, it's something pretty new to myself, um, probably since the beginning of lockdown, um, when we've all had a lot more time on our hands and. Um, a lot less things to do, so um, enjoy a good podcast um, when I'm walking. Um, very, very open to going on lots of people's um, podcasts and happy to talk about my career and, and different subjects. So, yeah, it's been really, really interesting. So I think they're, you know, I'm not a huge reader myself. Um, I try to read. Um, I really need to be enticed by a book to to keep my concentration, but podcasts are a brilliant way just to, to listen and and gather new in, information from from people. So yeah, really enjoy them. So may I suggest another podcast in that number? It's it's a good one. You should uh, get on that. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, other other than in that number, obviously. Um, yeah, do you have any uh, particular favourites that you'd like to share with us? Well, at the moment, the one I would like to share is the one probably I'm doing myself. Um, so I've got one running uh, on my own at the moment, where is which I'm very very passionate about. It's called Life Outside of Sport. Um, and it's, uh, it's early days with it. Um, probably had about nine or ten um, interviews with with former professionals and, and people within the industry, um, and more discussing once life once the game finishes, really, and what effect that has on players. And um, did they see it coming? Did they see the emotions they were going to experience? Um, had they planned for life after football? Is it how they expected it? And um, there's some really interesting stories and interviews that we've done with players that some have had really successful um, finishes to their career and have adapted to the real world very easily. Um, and some players haven't and they're really suffering and still suffering. You know, we spoke to, I won't name the player, but we spoke to the player um, a couple of weeks ago and he's 20 years um, retired and he's still really, wow. really suffering with it. So. You know, finishing your career, I've been a professional footballer, a professional sports person, it's fantastic, don't get me wrong, it's a privilege, you're blessed to be able to do it, um, but there's definitely some downfalls uh, to afterwards and adapting to, to real life, so um, something I'm real passionate, I had my own struggles personally and, and that's where that's come from, so that's the podcast we're working really hard on at the moment. That'd be good, I'll have to get that listened to. Before we get stuck in to the show... I just want to know how you are in general and how you and your family are coping with this lockdown. Well, we're very, very fortunate in the fact that we're all healthy um, and everyone in my family and, and close friends are all healthy. Um, I've not really known anyone that has suffered badly with, with COVID, so that's fortunate enough. Um, I've got three children. We've had the homeschooling, which has been interesting. <laughs> I'm, right, I'm have... right there with you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But we've survived that and we've adapted to it and we, we kind of, um, found a structure to it. It was it was difficult. Don't get me wrong, especially probably 
the most recent lockdown because of the winter period. You know, in, in the summertime when it first happened, um, everyone could be outside, enjoy the sun, and it felt a little bit different. Um, but we've been okay, to be honest. You know, for, for myself personally, I've, um, I've got back into football in terms of the football media, which is which has been great. Um, I've loved that, and that's come from from lockdown and being able to do a lot of media stuff from home. So we're okay, to be honest. You know, the light's at the end of the tunnel. It looks like things are hopefully going to get back to some sort of more uh, normality, whatever that's going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been okay. So we're one of the fortunate ones. Yeah, it's, it's been it's been incredibly challenging for, for for me as well. But I'm I'm quite lucky to be getting out and going to work and you know trying to to carry on as as normal as I possibly can. But Kev, it's it's different for you over in Moscow, isn't it? Yeah, I mean we had one lockdown about a year ago, lasted for about two months, and that was tough. It's maybe even stricter than the one in the UK. But um, yeah, at the moment, I mean, it's just wear a mask and do more or less what you want. <laughs> um, I did get my second dose of the vaccine. Uh, this week. So, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. That's good. Glad to hear it, Kevin. <laughs> okay, so yeah, if we start off um, talking about your um, childhood and growing up, I mean, uh, how old were you when you first kicked a ball? Good question. Um, it would have been reasonably early. Um, got a, I'm from a family that are very passionate about football, love football, and, and very active. So we used to do lots of sports in in the garden as a family together. I'd probably say, I don't know, three or four years old. It wasn't ridiculously young. You know, I wasn't one of these projects that was kicking a ball at nine months or something. Um, but, you know, three or four years old, probably um, found the interest in football um, and then never really stopped, if I'm honest, was always with a ball. Um, like I said, my, my mum and dad both love football. Um, so we'd always be active at weekends when my parents weren't working. Um, we used to watch as much football as we possibly could back in those days. There's probably only one game on a weekend, but <laughs> we used to try to watch it or go to local games to, to watch them. And yeah, probably from three or four and then kind of developed from, from, from there to um, working my way into my first team, which would have been, I think, about when I was younger. You couldn't start playing in a team until about seven or eight because um, I think I... I was asked to play when I was a little bit younger, but you weren't allowed. So, um, yeah, three or four, I think I probably started kicking a ball around. I mean, was your family, did they support a particular team at all? I mean, when you're close to Brighton, but um, were they Brighton supporters? No, they weren't. Um, my dad was a Nottingham Forest of Ways, a Nottingham Forest supporter. Um, loved Nottingham Forest. Um, was probably around in the glory years of, of Brian Clough and just continued mm-hmm. to follow. Um, and my mum is a Man United supporter. Um, so, very, very different. Um, and she obviously supported them when it, when they weren't in the glory years, I suppose. So, um, interesting. And, and myself, not really, you know, growing up, I didn't really support anyone. I used to follow Brighton because of my local team, but wasn't a real passionate supporter of any football club, more just followed players around and whoever they played for. Yeah, I think Gazza I heard is your, your idol. Yeah, unfortunately I couldn't play like him, but um, he was, um, <laughs> yeah, I used to love watching Gazza, you know, central midfield player, um, just the way he used to express himself on the football pitch, um, brilliant skills, loved the game, very passionate, big personality. He was just brilliant to watch, you know, dribbling with the ball, the turns he did, the strength he had with his body, scored some great goals. I mean, who didn't like watching Paul Gascoigne? So, you know, anyone he played for, um, used to try and get the kit and persuade my mum and dad to buy that football kit and just used to watch as much as I could of him. But like I say, in those days, there wasn't that much football on TV. So if he did get the chance to watch him, it was a 
bit of a privilege, but him and then probably moved on to Roy Keane. I used to love watching Roy Keane play. Me too. Me too. I've seen them both play. I saw Gaz Gazza at the old Wembley as well, and I thought he was incredible from such a young age. Seeing all the things that he could do with the ball, it was just, ah, yeah, amazing. Do you remember the first game that you went to? Do you know what? No one's ever asked me that. Um, (laughs) Do I remember the first game I ever went to? I probably don't, but I'm gonna guess it was it was it would have been at the Goldstone, so it would have been yeah. at, um Brighton's obviously old ground, which is a brilliant ground. The Goldstone it was falling apart. It was an old ground, but brilliant atmosphere. A bit like the Dow. <laughs> yeah, the pitch was always good, like at the Dow as well. I think older pitches used to always be good for for whatever reason. Uh, always on slopes and stuff, were never flat, but <laughs> always in good condition. But um, yeah, probably it would have been at the Goldstone when I. I signed for Brighton at 11 years old. We used to get free tickets. Um, and it wasn't, you know, you could get as many as you wanted in those days because Brighton were playing in League Two, um, or the old third division as it, mm-hmm. as it was then or fourth division, whatever it was back in the day. So there wasn't massive crowds. So it was quite easy to get tickets. Um, but I'm pretty sure that was the first game I went to, the first live game I went to. Um, so yeah, I used to love going to, to the Goldstone. I really did. Was there anyone who, Spotted your talent and just said, like, yeah, you've got something here. Um, well, my mum and dad were very, very supportive. Um, they encouraged me to obviously get into the game and saw that I was um, probably a little bit better than the average player. Um, so encouraged me, if I wanted to, to, to play football. But then it was more school teachers. You know, I was always within the school team. I was always captain. Um, I used to play up a, um, an age group as well for, for district teams. So where I was from, you went from a school team to, um, I was born in Hastings. So you went from a school team to Hastings and Bexhill, which is obviously the two towns combined together. Then you went to East Sussex and then you went to Sussex. So it would have been, it would have been school teachers that probably, um, I used to just get a little bit more attention, if that makes sense, mm. um, because I was probably one of the better players and they would, again, en- encourage me to do the extra training or give me advice or um, a little bit more detail than the other players. And I was always willing to listen. So I think it, it we bounced off each other quite well. So I can't really, at, at an early age, I can't really identify anyone in particular. My parents probably, well, definitely my parents, but in terms of teachers, it, there was a lot of teachers that, you were associated with. It was more as I grew up, there was a lot of coaches as I started to get through the age groups that, that really inspired me and helped me. So when, when you moved on to your, in, into your early career, did you always know that you wanted to be a central midfield player? Yeah, I mean, I'd never played anywhere else growing up. I always wanted to be a central midfield player. Again, going back to Paul Gascoigne, Roy Keane, they were the players that I love watching. You know, central midfield players are always involved in the game, whether you're you, as a team, you have the ball, you don't have the ball, you're always involved. So I love being involved in the action. Um, so, you know, never wanted to be a striker or a defender or a winger, always wanted to be a central midfield player. I mean, I had spells when I first got into the Brighton team uh, on the professional level that I played out on the wing, but kind of a narrow winger. Mm. Um, because I was reasonably tall and pretty good in the air, so the, the manager at the time wanted me to get into into the box. But no, central midfielder, um, loved every bit of it, loved the defensive work, loved the attacking work, loved getting on the ball, loved winning the ball back. So, you know, I think I was naturally drawn to being a central midfield player. See, I, I was 
when I started, I, I was just all I wanted to do was be a, a central defender because I just like kicking the shit out of people. That's all I could do. <laughs> I just just kick lumps out of people and hoof the ball up, you know, up to the strikers who used to put the ball in the net. So I get I got um yeah a lot of praise for that. But yeah, I couldn't I couldn't take the heat of a, a central midfielder. I just wasn't fit enough, and I certainly wasn't good enough to, to play as a striker. As it became clearer that professional football was something that you were going to do full time. Um, was there any particular team that you dreamed of playing for? Well, at the time, you know, again, I've mentioned it. I, I was from Hastings, which is a pretty small town. Um, there's not too many footballers. At my, um, at my time, I'd come through. Gareth Barry was a couple of years older than me uh, from Hastings, and he'd obviously gone to Aston Villa at the time. Um, I'd always dreamed of obviously playing for Brighton because it was my my local team. I didn't look too far ahead, if if I'm honest. I had a a career goal that I wanted to play in the Premier League. That was always my ambition. You know, starting from a League Two team to get to the Premier League seemed a, a long way away. But in terms of one team, no, I didn't really identify a team and think, right, I want to play for Liverpool or Manchester United or someone like that. It was more just trying to become a professional footballer and then get into the Premier League. So my aim was more to get to the highest level. It didn't necessarily have to be with a certain team and that probably came down to the fact that I wasn't a huge or passionate supporter of one club that I didn't think well I'd love to play for them um obviously as I went through my career and um had affiliations with football clubs and loves for football clubs then um that changes but when I was younger no there wasn't one team that was more getting to the Premier League that was my ultimate goal so I mean it's the first dream come true then when you signed your first pro contract for Brighton yes it did you know that was uh, I found, uh, signed my first professional contract at 19 um, signed YTS forms at 16 so left school straight away I think we had a week's break from um, our exams and then went straight into um, pre-season um, at 16, had three years as a, um, a YTS, a youth team player, made my professional debut and played for the first team during that period, um, but then signed my first professional contract at 19 at Brighton. So yeah, one of the one of the box ticks, I, I suppose, and one of the dreams and ambitions um, fulfilled um, and was very, very happy and very, very proud, but obviously knew it was just the start. You know, that was the start of your, your career when you first signed them professional contracts and um, brilliant feeling. Uh, I remember signing, you know, a two-year contract. Um, I think Peter Taylor was the manager at Brighton at the time who offered me the, the contract. Um, there was no negotiations. There was no, I want this money, they want this money. It was straight away, this is what you're going to get. This is the length of the contract. You've got two hours to sign it. There was no going back. Didn't need an agent. Didn't oh, need to speak to anyone. How things have changed. <laughs> yeah, just, sign, just signed it in the office. You know, once a professional football, I think I signed for... I think my first contract I was on about £150 a week, something like that. So, but uh, you know, them days you didn't need money. I, you, not that I didn't need money. I didn't it didn't? I was so focused on being a professional footballer. As long as I could get to training and getting home, I didn't need anything else. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, one thing I've always wanted to know was, so in in 2006-7 you were handed the vacant number 11 shirt at Brighton. I want to ask about shirt numbers because I've always wanted to know this. Like, is it your choice? To, to pick a number or are you allocated that? Great question. You're allo- you, you get a choice out of the numbers that are available. Um, so generally, if you know, you're coming for the youth system, you turn professional, there will be numbers available, whether there's players that have left the football club, um, players that have changed numbers, there will be a list of numbers that are, uh, that are still available. If you've had a player at a football club that's been there a long time, 
there's got to be a strong reason for that number to change, really. Mm. Um, so, you know, lower down, it's more the fact that the, the numbers are available and you get a choice then. You know, at the time when I got given the number 11 shirt, I was told by the manager I was going to be given number 11 because I was playing more regularly in the first team. Um, and I think at the time I'd been, I don't know, number 20, number 34, something like that. So it was more going from a squad player to um, being appreciated. I was a, a first team regular um, and bringing my number down. Not that it didn't bother me really as a player or an individual, um, but, you know, as you go through your career and if you're a major signing for the football club, you can ask for a number and they mm-hmm. will take it off a player to give you that number. If you're a, you know, a record club signing or a really important signing, you come in and say, right, I want the number eight, number 10 shirt. You're likely to get that. Now it's going to upset the player that's <laughs> got that number. But if you are a top player coming in, then that, that can happen. Um, it can also, I mean, I, when I, at the end of my career, I remember signing, um, when I went on loan to Sheffield United and there was only two numbers available. We had that many in the squad. It was either number nine or number 34. And I thought, I can't be a number nine. <laughs> no, I'll be the lowest scoring number nine in the career and the club's history. So I went for number 34. So the numbers for me personally didn't mean a lot, but it can go down to, you know, the club, the, the manager can decide which number you want. You choose from the availability. Or if you're a major signing, then you probably can dictate what number you want. That's really, really interesting. Because I think um, when Zlatan signed for Man United, he took Martial's number nine. And uh, I think Martial had to move to a number 11. There you because, go. Because Zlatan gets <laughs> what he wants. <laughs> yeah, you had um, eight, eight years at Brighton. I mean, with a couple of loan spells. Um, not going to talk a, a huge amount about that, I'm afraid. Yeah, then you left for Colchester and played alongside Teddy Sheringham. Um, uh, yeah, after a successful season there, um, Paul Lambert, he left for Norwich and apparently wanted to take you with him. So if the Saints deal hadn't been on the table, would you have followed him? If it was if it was possible, you know, if the Saints deal wasn't on the table, um, yes, I would have loved to have followed Paul Lambert to, to Norwich because I really enjoyed playing under him. Um, he was a manager that inspired me and motivated me and at the time was helping me play my, my best football um, of my career. I don't think Colchester would have allowed me and Paul Lambert to go to Norwich, to be honest. I think there was enough issues with Paul Lambert going to Norwich and being able to get out of his contract, let alone allowing their captain to then sign for the football club. So I don't think realistically it would have happened. You know, when I was going to sign for... For Southampton, Paul Lambert did give me a call and, uh, and approached me and said, look, I would like to bring you, you to Norwich, but I won't be able to do it yet. I've got to assess the football club, so c- could you hold on and not sign for Southampton? But I'd already made my mind up. I wanted to sign for Southampton. It didn't matter if Norwich had come in with an official bid, if Colchester had allowed me to go to Norwich. Um, I wanted to move to Southampton. It was a club that... Um, I'd always wanted to play for, you know, down south, it's the biggest, it's the biggest club, um, a club with a huge tradition and history and new owners, um, really ambitious. Um, so there was never any doubt in my mind as well. Obviously knew Dean Wilkins there from my time at Brighton, who was now assistant manager. Um, but yeah, I mean, if the Southampton thing hadn't have happened, um, I would have followed Paul because I really enjoyed working under Paul Lambert and, you could see from the effect he had at Norwich when they went and got back-to-back promotions as well. You signed for Saints in August 2009, and you signed when we were at our lowest point, really, you know, League One, 
minus 10. How did that transfer come about and, and what made you sign the Saints in, in such a difficult time for the club? Was it just like the Dean Wilkins and the, the connection there? Well, the club is a huge pull. So, you know, as soon as I knew Southampton were interested, um, it came about reasonably, it came about from a phone call from, from Dean Wilkins that um, obviously it's um, been appointed assistant manager at Southampton. Uh, Southampton were looking for some central midfield players. Um, I was on that list. Um, so the initial phone call was no approach or nothing, anything official. Just the fact that would I be interested if, if Alan Pardew made you his number one choice, would you come to the football club? And obviously I said, yes, of course, you know, if, if Colchester could agree a deal, I'd love to come to Southampton, even though I knew they were on minus 10, um, in League One, they were on the uh, bottom of League One. Um, I wanted to, to, to make the move. So that's how it initially started. Um, then it went quiet for a few weeks. Then an official bid came in. Um, Colchester turned it down. Colchester actually offered me a new contract. We were in negotiations for that. Um, but I didn't really want to sign a new contract. But Colchester were pretty adamant. Well, the, the, the chairman told me, look, we're not going to sell you. So here's an improved contract. So I didn't think it was going to happen. Southampton kept improving their bids, but it kept getting turned down. Um, and then I thought it was dead in the water, to be honest. Um, and then, for whatever reason, I, I don't actually know what the, the value of the price I actually went for in the end. I'm not sure, but they obviously agreed it. Um, and Robbie Cowan at Colchester was really good. The chairman allowed me to go. And it was actually on the same day that Paul Lambert um, signed for, for Norwich uh, as manager. So that's how it came about. But there was never any doubt in my mind. You know, I spoke to Dean Wilkins. Um, I knew Alan Pardew had, had gone to Southampton, obviously, as the manager. And that kind of speaks volumes. You know, a manager like Alan Pardew going to Southampton in League One on minus 10 points is going there because the club has got ambition to, to move up through the leagues. He's going to invest money. I knew the owners were very ambitious. Like I said, they just signed Ricky Lambert for a million pounds. I was really, really keen to sign. So, you know, I was on the phone to my agent pretty much every day asking for an update. Is it going to happen? Um, and again, you know, with that, the, the contract got offered by Southampton. There wasn't huge negotiations because I was just attracted by the, by the football club. Um, there was more incentives, if I'm honest, in the contract than, than actually negotiating the basic wage and which I liked within my career because it motivated me as a player. So it didn't take too long to negotiate that and it happened pretty quickly from then. That's great. I love to hear that. I mean, they, they, the club kind of showed that they were serious by spending big. I mean, not just you and uh, Ricky, but yeah, Rad Jaidi, Dan Harding, um, Jason Punch and Jose Fonte. Um, or, yeah, they all came in. But with, yeah, with all that new blood and the points deduction, was it a realistic goal to go straight back into the championship? That was the aim. I remember when I first met Alan, you know, I, I didn't actually meet Alan until I'd signed. Um, I'd done everything through Dean Wilkins and I spoke to the chairman. Um, but I, I spoke, met Alan in the morning I signed um, in the office, in the manager's office. We had a really good chat. Um, and his ambition was, look, we're going to go for promotion this year, even though we're on 10, minus 10 points, we're, the, the club's going to invest in players. You know, you, you've got to think as well, you know, Jason Punch and Lee Barnard, Jose Fonte didn't come in till January. So, you know, we had a decent, we had a, we had a period of time from the summer to January to, to really kind of find our feet until we were at our strongest, if that makes sense. Um, so it was always going to be a tough call, but, 
you know, to finish seventh that season and play the football we did, especially in the second half of the season when everything really clicked was, was fantastic. But it was, it was the ambition of that club to try, um, their best to try and get into the players. We knew we weren't going to get automatic promotion. Um, but the aim was to try and get into the players and we just fell short, you know, that, that minus 10 points just caught up on us. So really good season, but won the JPT and that was an amazing experience. I must admit, still one of the best days of, of my life in, in my career. So, um, yeah, we, we, we put all the efforts in to try and get promoted. Um, we just, couldn't quite make it happen that year. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that great end to the season it just 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 wasn't enough, which is disappointing. But um, like you said, the Johnson's Paint Trophy. I mean, for for the team, um, for the fans, for the whole city. I mean, the other yeah, place was uh, was alive then. But I've, I've heard you speaking critically about the performance despite winning four <laughs> one. I don't think I was critical about the performance. Maybe my own. Um, I think. That, um, I, oh, I think that. that Everyone's seen the game. I don't think we were at our best. I don't think we played the most fluent um, football that day. We played a lot in terms of performance. We played a lot better that season. Um, but we were very effective and, and we won the game very, very comfortably. Um, Car- um, Carlisle actually started the game brilliantly. Um, kind of caught us on our back foot and a little bit cold. Um, and But once we got the first goal... Um, uh, there was no looking back, really. And obviously, with the support from the fans, red and white everywhere, we knew we were going to win that day. We, we, we As soon as I've said it many times, as soon as we were on the bus, as soon as we were pulling up, you know, Wembley, uh, towards Wembley, and we saw all the red and white and um, the, the, the the happiness of the fans, the excitement, the enthusiasm of the fans, the players just knew we were going to win that day. There was no way we were going to leave that, we were going to leave that picture without that trophy. Um so, no, a brilliant day. Like I say, we didn't play our best, but we scored four goals, won 4-1, four, one, um, won the game really, really comfortably. Um, I just don't think we actually we played our best that day. It was it was quite a straightforward performance, but it wasn't the most exciting if you really watched the game. And personally, I don't think I even touched the ball that much, to be honest. It was more <laughs> just uh, doing my job. So, you know... Um, I enjoyed it in terms of the result and enjoyed the the atmosphere, but in terms of I wish I touched the ball a little bit more. But not a great memory. Great, <laughs> it was. It's still talking about it today. <laughs> yeah, everyone still talks about it. It's it's amazing, amazing memories. Yeah, that first season, you you were given the captain's armband. I mean, um, how did you feel about it? Because um, yeah, Kelvin Davis was the the captain before. Was that yeah, a, a so when obviously I've been captain at Brighton, I've been captain at, at Colchester. Um, so I had experience of, of that role and, and Calvin was, you know, Cal was still captain, you know, he was club captain. Um, I just got the privilege of wearing the armband and, um, and leading the team out really and having the responsibility of leading by, by example. That's what Alan wanted me to do. Um, that was the reason, you know, he called me and Calvin to the office and explained the situation that the fact that he wanted to have an outfield player as a captain to help influence the match, to help influence the referee, to help influence other players. And he felt that it was a little bit difficult for Kelf to do that as a goalkeeper. Um, so that was the reason. Obviously, um, um, Alan um, chose me, which was, you know, very grateful, very privileged. Uh, it was, I'm not going to lie. It was, it was a little bit of a test to start with because, you know, you've got to win the dressing room rounds. Um, you've got to win the respect of the players and, 
you know, you've got to remember I was very early in my career at Colchester. So I was still trying to prove myself as a player, let alone a captain. Um, but I was up for the challenge. Um, never had any doubt about um, saying no. As soon as he asked me, I said yes. And um, I used to love wearing the armband. I used to think it made me a better player, if I'm honest. I enjoyed that responsibility. I loved it. Um, so that's how it came about. And um, I loved leading the team out. Um, I love setting the example, and like I say, I love that responsibility. I think it made me a better player. Yeah, you were you were a natural leader, Dean. I'm not going to lie; it was it was a given. I think. Thank you, I appreciate that. The start of the 2010-11 season was quite promising, you know, off the back of the Wembley win and going so close to the playoffs. I think bookies had us down as favourites for the title, um, but there was there was some sad news with the death of Marcus Lieber. Um, how did that affect the squad at that time? Well, like you say, it was very, very sad. Um, you know, Marcus was a really, really nice uh, man, a really, really nice family. Um, they'd saved the football club. Um, they had really, really good intentions for the football club. Um, the journey had just begun. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd put his money and his love into the football club. Um, he'd seen the, the happiness he'd brought the fans, you know, winning the JPT and he was there when we lifted the trophy. He was, mm. he was up there. I remember seeing him and, you know, met him a couple of times. Brilliant, really nice guy, like I mentioned. So it was tough to take because it was such a surprise. Um, obviously didn't know what was going to happen after that. Um, and it was really, really sad. I'm not going to lie. It affected the football club. It affected the players. Um, and things like that do to, because when it, things like that happen to such nice people and genuine people, it is hard to take, but, as players, you have to try and concentrate on your job. And we knew that the best thing we could do was win football matches and be successful for the football club to, to kind of try and repay, repay Marcus. Um, so it was sad. It, it was tough. You know, the funeral was hard because him and his family had saved the football club and, and personally given me the opportunity to, to play for Southampton. So I was, you know, it was, it was tough. It was. Yeah. And then going into the season, you know, beat Bristol Rovers 4-0 and directly after that there was more bad news and Alan Pardew was sacked and we were all really really shocked there was it the same for the, for you players I think we were shocked at the timing if I'm honest um there'd been rumors there'd been murmurings that there was a um the relationship between um Alan and um probably Nicola wasn't the strongest but you know you don't think that after a 4-0 victory the manager's going to get the sack you know we'd not started the season particularly well um but we just probably clicked again and and found our rhythm and looked like okay we're going to start playing our best football and really um uh start moving up the league now and 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 kind of set a uh, an example to the other teams that we meant business. Um, so it was a surprise for the time. And I remember driving to the training ground and getting near to the training ground and just hearing on the radio that Alan had, had been oh, sacked. Oh, wow. You, f- you yeah. found out on the radio. Wow. Well, yeah, I found out on the radio in the, in, in the morning only for the fact that I'd missed a few calls on my phone. Um, so I'd not looked at my phone. I think Nicola had tried to call me. Calv had tried to, tried to call me. And obviously I was driving... Um, and at the time, didn't have hands free, so I wasn't um, going to answer my phone. Um, and I got to the train gun, towards the train gun, heard it on the radio. Um, so it was a surprise. And uh, Nicola was there at the training ground to to inform the players of the situation and what was going to happen. And that Dean Wilkins was was going to take um, Dean Wilkins and Martin Hunter, I think, were going to take over mm. for three or four games while the club looked for for a new manager. So 
a surprise for the timing, but you know, there'd been rumours, if that makes sense. There'd been a few, yeah. you heard a few things that things weren't quite as rosy as it looked from the outside. Yeah. But then of course, uh, Nigel Atkins came in. Did you have an instant report with Nigel? Well, Nigel came in and I'd not really, I'd never spoken to Nigel. I'd not, I'd played against his teams. Um, I'd, uh, but I didn't know him. I knew his assistant manager, Andy Crosby. I'd played with that with um, Andy Crosby at Brighton when I was a youngster, so I knew him. Um, but when, you know, Nigel came in, um, I think during the period when Dean Wilkins was in charge, we'd lost three games in a row, four games in a row, I think. I remember the defeat at home to Rochdale, which was a really low point, um, and the players were suffering from a little bit of confidence, um, and uh, we just needed a lift, to be honest. And Nigel came in. Look, we all know what Nigel's like. Very, very positive, very professional, and just lifted the mood of the players. So it was brilliant. They, you know, set out the ambition and the, and the vision for the season that we were we were still going to get promotion, that we were going to try and win the league. Um, and it just lifted the players. And you know, his belief and his enthusiasm just rubbed off from the players straight away, and we bought into it. And um, you know, and the results didn't happen straight away. You know, I think there was a few draws and maybe a defeat in the first game, but training changed. We worked really hard in training. Um, the pattern of play changed, the philosophy changed, and it took a while for Nigel to get that across to the players. But, you know, he was really enthusiastic and, you know, the players enjoyed working under him. And like I mentioned, as soon as we got into the rhythm, how he wanted us to play, there was no looking back because we had some talented, talented players in that squad. Um, a really, really top team. So, um, But he was great when Nigel came in. He really, really was. I mean, he is quite an unorthodox manager. I mean, yeah, like you said, he's, he's really enthusiastic and positive and we love him for that. But um, um, as, as fans, you see him do things like recite poetry and post-match <laughs> interviews. And I've heard you and um, Lambert talking about the silent football in training. But I mean, what was the most unusual thing that Nigel used to do as manager? See, I think there's a perception of Nigel. I don't think he particularly done anything unusual, if I'm honest. He was very, very uh, professional. Uh, there was a lot of structure and organisation in terms of what he did. Um, in terms of team meetings, um, in terms of the message he gave to the players. He used to introduce new things, you know. The heart rate monitors, the GPSs were pretty new and they came into the club to track how we trained, how much effort we were putting into training. The recovery after training improved, the nutrition improved. So Nigel brought a lot into the football club and, and kind of changed the football club and improved the football club from from the ground up, really, and it made a huge, huge difference. So I don't think he'd done anything outrageous. You know, they're, like every manager, they have their own little ways, and um, the sign and football was interesting, but really, really worked. It helped you with your awareness off the ball because you knew where you, you needed to know where you was on the pitch and who you're going to pass to. No one's going to inform you of a man on or where they were on the pitch. Um, but, you know... Nigel was brilliant in terms of he liked the players to be inclusive. He wanted the players' opinions. He wanted the players to have a voice. Um, so he'd ask you questions on occasions. You'd be having a conversation with him. He'd ask you a question. You'd answer it. He'd stare at you and then just walk off, which was quite <laughs> interesting sometimes. And you'd think, oh, fuck, what have I said here? Well, you know, I said the wrong thing. Am I not going to be playing at the weekend now? So, um, yeah, he kept you on your toes, but um, 
no, he, he was good. You know, he had a good relationship with the players, and yeah, I really, really enjoyed my time under Nigel. We loved him. We enjoyed him. Good luck to him at Charlton. Um, I, I've got a lot of memories from that season. I mean, there was a real, uh, like a feel-good factor around the club then, because growing up, the early years of the Premier League, seemingly fighting relegation every year. But this season, it just felt great because I always felt that we could beat anybody and we had the likes of Schneiderlin, Lalana, Oxlade-Chamberlain all learning their craft. And then we had like you and Lambert, Chaplow, Barnard. It was just a great time to be a Saints fan and lots and lots of fond memories from that year. And, and that game, one game in particular, that 4-4 at Peterborough, I mean, <laughs> what a game to watch and I'm sure it was to be involved in. And I think, yeah, you scored a fantastic goal in that game, didn't you? The, the cutback from the corner. And you hit first time, and it just, yeah, lovely, lovely goal. I mean, it was a great game. Uh, I remember that game was live in the sky as well, I think it, it was. It was, yeah, but 4-2 four, four up, and then, you know. 4-4. Four, four. Wind yeah. was, it was windy as anything, that game. There's a slope at Peterborough as well. Pitch wasn't the greatest, but a 4-4 four, four draw. Um, yeah, you know, I think we were, did we go 1-0 down and then 2-1 up? Yeah, that's right, yeah. 4-2 four, four, up. Yeah, um, there was a couple of dodgy penalty decisions both ways. I don't think Chappies was a penalty. I don't think <laughs> the, the penalty given against um, Alex Oxide Chamberlain. I don't think that was a penalty. Um, so yeah, I mean a great game. Obviously, you know, I love every player loves scoring, and it wasn't something that we we'd worked on the training ground. That actually that set piece, it was more of a something that Andy Crosby had, had, had actually seen during the first half, saying that they hadn't, they left no one on the edge of the box. So I was supposed to be staying back. He said, look, we'll leave one-on-one one at the back. Um, if they're still leaving no one on the box, just, just you know, um, get the eyes with Alex and, and look at Alex. And if you do that, he'll cut the ball back to the edge of the box, just run on and strike it. So um, I was just hoping I wasn't going to clear the stand, to be honest. So oh, it was, it was not- amazing. Amazing connection. Yeah, nice to see it going. But, you know, talking about Nigel, I mean, Nigel, after the game, you know, you'd expect that after being 2-1 up and 4-2 up that he would come come in and be disappointed and um, probably have a few harsh words to say. But he just sat down with the players and kind of asked our opinion on it and spoke about it and said, well, what happened there? What didn't we do so well? What did we do well? You know, how could we improve? And they were the small things that really, really helped us because then you actually start reflecting on the game and actually thinking about the game as a player, individually and collectively. And I think then you go into a better mindset into the next game. That's amazing. That's really good, because a lot of people would lose their rag there, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> there, there's some other standout games of that, that season. A 2-0 against Bournemouth, uh, 4-1 over Huddersfield, 6-0 away at Oldham, uh, 2-0 at Colchester, and you bagging one against your old club. Uh, 3-1 win at Bournemouth, a 2-1 win at Brighton, from one, one down with five minutes to spare, if, I'm, yeah. if I remember it right. One thing that we could be sure of on that season was goals. I mean, you scored 86 goals in the league. That's, you know, that's incredible. It is. And um, you could, with the players we had, you know, Ricky Lambert, Adam Lallana, Gooley, um, I'm going to miss players out here now, Chappie, Lee Barnard, Jason Punchin. You know, the, the centre-half scored a few goals as well. I think me and Morgan shot, shipped in with, with a few as well. So we had so much talent within that club. And the way, like I mentioned, when Nigel came into the football club, he wanted us to play a forward-thinking football. You can get crosses in the box, um, play forward at every opportunity. Um, so we had some really talented players that really enjoyed playing with each other, which really helped. You know, there was a good, healthy relationship within the dressing room, um, real respect, and we worked 
Look, I'm going to have to say this now. We worked so hard on the training ground. You know, during the mm. week, we worked so hard in terms of tactically, physically as well. There were some double sessions that we would do. We were, there wasn't a fitter team within that league. There wasn't a better prepared team in that league. Um, and the, you know, the strikers and the attacking players used to work on, um, the, the moves that you would see in games that would, that would create opportunities and goals. We used to work on that in training around mannequins and, you know, day in, day out. So there was no coincidence, you know, missing David Connolly out there. David Connolly was brilliant. Mm, what a yeah. player, fortunately for his injuries, but I mean, what a player. Um, so, so talented and brilliant in the dressing room as well. Um, so you're right, you know, we could always score goals. We really could. Yeah, and then last game of the season, promotion to the championship was confirmed. I think it was it was Warsaw, wasn't it? All the hard work that you said it all paid off. Finished second at Brighton Champions. Um, but yeah, what what a feeling. Do, did you ever feel bad for not getting to pick up a trophy? Because, I mean, me personally, I always feel bad for the teams that finish second and don't get to lift, you know, the silverware for, in front of their fans. And yet, you know, the playoff victors get that experience. Is that something you really care about? Or is it are you just happy to get that promotion? I think that season, no, it wasn't the fact of um, winning the league. It was the fact of promotion. We wanted promotion. You know, we were... We had a new manager that come in, you know, we were probably, what, eight games into the season, potentially something like that. It took a little while to click. Brighton had a fantastic season that season under Gus Poyet. They were playing some brilliant football. Um, so it was more the fact that we were playing catch-up. We didn't start on a level pegging, if that makes sense. Um, mm. So we were just relieved, if I'm honest, that season to be promoted. Like, overjoyed and emotionally, it was brilliant and happy, but a little bit of relief in, the, in there because there was a little bit of expectation that year where the previous season there wasn't. We started at minus 10, the club was mm. recovering, there was a, a real buoyant atmosphere around the football club. The second season we didn't start well and there was a little bit of pressure on us, um, which I loved as a player. Um, so actually getting the promotion meant more than whether we lifted the trophy or not, to be honest. Um, it was just fantastic. And the scenes, you know, on the last day of the season, the, the stuff you'll never forget. You know, I still think about them now. It still gives me goosebumps. You know, the fans running on the pitch, lifting the players up, mm-hmm. feeling like you've achieved something together. You know, Nigel used to go on about a lot. Is about everyone. It's a, a real collective effort, and he really meant that, and he meant the fans as well because, you know, the fans turning out on their numbers, singing every week, uh, supporting us, encouragers, home and away, you know, supporters in such numbers. It was a privilege to play for the football club. It really, really was. Um, so we so enjoy it in the last day of the season together, you know, on the pitch, finally getting into the dressing room, enjoying it with the players and the families and then coming back out onto the balcony, the fans singing songs, you know, I, I, I can still picture it and, think, and like picture it clear now. So, you know, amazing times. God, wouldn't it have been good to be in that dressing room, Kev? Yeah, of course, the, the next season, I mean, Cortese had his five-year plan to reached the Premier League and I mean that was well underway um, with promotion to the Championship already achieved and you've got more, even more reinforcements coming um, Jack Hawke, Steve DeRidder, Tadanari Lee, Billy Sharp, Jos Oyvold, Danny Fox. Was the feeling around the team any different from getting to the Championship? Was the plan to, to stay in the Championship or did you really feel that you could push straight away for the title? 
No, like I can sit here and it's easy for me to say now, but I can promise you that the, the, the ambition was to get promoted again. You know, we had a meeting at the end of the season uh, when we got promoted from League One to the Championship. We all had individual meetings with the manager. He made it clear that we needed to stay very fit over the summer, that he was going to bring new players into the football club, but also give us players an opportunity to prove ourselves in the Championship. Because um, you've got to remember that, you know, them players that are in that group now, are established international players, Premier League players, but at the time, not many of them had actually played in the Championship. So we were all still trying to prove a point, um, and the manager was going to give us that opportunity. Um, but he made it fully aware, look, you come back fit next season, there's going to be competition, and we're going to go for promotion. You know, we don't need to shout about it from the rooftops. doesn't need to be said in the press, but within the group and within us at the training ground, we're going to be pushing for the Premier League. Um, so we all went away. We got given our individual programs over the summer, worked really, really hard. I remember coming back and we had a meeting on the first day of pre-season and the manager said, look, nothing's changed. Um, we've signed a couple of players. I think Jack Cool could sign by then. Um, I think Danny Fox is on his way in. Um, Billy Sharp didn't come until January. Tandori Lee uh, didn't come until, sorry, Lee didn't come until January. Uh, Josh Foyver came in late September, I think, August sort of time. Um, but it was all to, push for promotion. You know, Nigel made it very, very clear. There's no messing around. We're good enough. We've got the squad in here. We've got the momentum. We're going to go for promotion. And, you know, it was it was hard not to believe Nigel because we just won promotion from League One, playing really, brilliant, uh, really, really attractive, effective football. Um, he promised us that we would get promoted that year. He's promising it again. So why would you not follow him? So, no, the ambition was to get promoted, definitely. Yeah, and um, I mean, you made a great start to, to that campaign, the beating Leeds at home on the first day of the season and all those back-to-back victories. Um, it must have become clearer and clearer that you could achieve promotion. Yeah, well, it did, but there's one thing believing it and there's one thing proving that you're good enough. So we knew at the start of the season it was really, really important to, to start well. We'd had a really good pre-season. We'd worked really hard. We'd been away to Switzerland um, and worked really, really hard. Um, we'd had a, we'd picked up some good results in pre-season as well. I think, if I remember rightly, um, and started the season, I'd beaten Leeds at home. And Leeds were a strong, one of the strong favourites for promotion that year as well. So to beat them 3-1 at home on live on the sky was really important. I think then we went away to Barnsley and 1-1-0. Uh, which we play particularly well. One of our best performances of, of the season. You know, it doesn't get remembered because it's not a classic going away to Barnsley and winning 1-0. Uh, <laughs> but we played really, really well. I think then we played Ipswich and, and, and we were amazing again, winning 5-2. Um, then we beat Millwall. You know, I might be missing a couple of fixtures out. But there was, you know, we were playing some big teams and then played Birmingham. I think we were 4 nil up at half-time against Birmingham. So... You know, we were proving ourselves in week in, week out. I think we won 17 games at home in a row from the following season as well. Um, so we were kind of proving to everyone else, but more importantly, we are proving to ourselves that we were aiming for promotion, but we were beating the teams that were supposed to get promoted and we were beating them with ease. So it really felt as though um, it was a realistic target, so it just built up that confidence within, within us as, as players. What we wouldn't give for that home form now. Oh, I know. <laughs> That's something we haven't seen since, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's um, obviously a couple of South Coast derbies in there. Um, the draw at Fratton and, um, and the, yeah, another draw at home. But, oh, uh, that was horrible. Thanks to a 
Yeah, that last minute equaliser. Um, yeah, what was it like for you as uh, as captain in the in the South Coast Derby? Well, I'd probably say you know it was a brilliant game to play in. Uh, I don't think you quite appreciate, or I didn't appreciate the intensity of the game and the build up of the game, and the importance of the game until you actually playing it um, and the build up to it in the, in the week building up to it. Um, but it's probably one of my biggest disappointments as, as captain and, and, and me as a Southampton player that we didn't beat Portsmouth because we should have beaten them twice and we drew with them twice. So, mm. you know, the game at Fratton Park, again, wasn't a classic. It was a tight game. Um, wasn't the best standard, uh, but we were 1-0 up and then conceded from a set piece, which wasn't like us, to be honest. We didn't really concede from set pieces. So there was a bit of frustration after that result. I think that was around Christmas time as well. Um, and then we played them later on in the season. They were really struggling in the league. We were flying high, scored early through Billy Sharp. I remember that. Um, yep. And then they equalised and then we went 2-1 up with a goal that was given, disallowed and then given again. Um, and then, you know, more, I think it was Norris scores. It was, yeah. Uh, with a left foot volley, who's never used his left foot in his life. Uh, <laughs> but the great strike, to be fair to him. Um, to make it 2-2. So, real disappointment. But, look, the intensity and the build-up of the games were fantastic. The atmosphere was unbelievable, especially at St Mary's. You know, a full house, um, passionate fans. It was amazing to play, and it really, really was. I used to love the tackles, you know, because you get the roar from the crowd. The the tackles almost got a bigger roar than the goals, if I'm honest. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. You know, every tackle you'd win, you'd have to win, you know, especially as a player like myself. Couldn't lose any 50-50 tackles. And we thought we had the game won. And um, I remember being in the dressing room afterwards and um, it was quite probably really, really low. Not because we drew the game, but just the importance of the game and, what it would have meant in that, that season to get promoted and to beat Portsmouth would have been brilliant. It really would have been. Well, I mean, the, the sweetener really is that um, we got promoted and um, they went down. So, <laughs> like, as, as, the, as the season wore on, I mean, the, the Portsmouth game at home, I mean, we were pretty much all but promoted. But um, I, I remember quite clearly that uh, Coventry match, because that, that was um, shown live on TV even here, because um, I've moved to Moscow by this point. And yeah, that was, that was just one of the most incredible games that I've seen. And the scenes at the end of the match, uh, with the, the crowd running on the pitch and lifting Ricky like he was holding the World Cup. I mean, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that your famous BBC interview. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just in the dugout. Um, yeah, your joy was, uh, was there for all to see. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was a brilliant day. It really was. You know, to, to start with, you know, I had to go back a bit. We had to deal with the disappointment of not winning at Middlesbrough to get promoted. Um, and then the week, the week building up to the Coventry game, we'd done it a little bit different. We trained at the stadium all week. Uh, well, we'd never done that before. We'd always trained at the training ground, but, you know, Nigel wanted us at the, the stadium, wanted us training there, wanted us eating there, wanted us kind of socialising there, even though we played there, what, I don't know, 20 times that season already. Um, so we trained on the pitch. Um, there was a little bit of nervous, nerves around, um, the group a little bit. You know, it was, it was interesting for me. I was moving house two days before the game. Um, my wife was heavily pregnant as well. So I had to stay in a hotel to get, try and get some sleep. Um, so the, the build up was, 
Really, really tense, if I'm honest. Um, but look, let's, let's be honest. We were playing Coventry, or I think they were relegated. They were relegated, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you couldn't handpick a better fixture, if I'm honest. If we, if you, if you said at the start of the season, right, you're going to play Coventry in the last day of the season at home in front of a full house and they've been relegated, I think we would have taken it. So we were very, very confident. And one thing that we were, keen to do was to get an early goal we were really keen to do that just to settle the nerves of everyone um, and we did that you know is um i think it was billy sharp adam nalana's volley i think it was mm. um but billy sharp just touched it in and and then jose scored from from a from a free kick um i unfortunately had to come off injured yeah um, there's yeah. a frustration but it was one of those moments where i could have carried on but we were 2-0 up. The game was pretty much won. And I would never have forgave myself if, you know, I'd carried on playing for selfish reasons and then Coventry had scored because I couldn't quite stay with my runner or I'd made a mistake. And then we'd draw the game and we'd not got promoted just because I wanted to play the 90 minutes. So made the decision that I'm not physically able to carry on um, and came off, which was hard to take. But we went on to win the game 4-0 and... You know, that interview would have never happened if I hadn't come off injured. So, yeah. I got the pre-warning that we're live, don't swear on TV. So I was, I was pre-warned, so there's no excuse there. Um, but yeah, just the excitement came out and as soon as I said it, um, obviously went viral, which is, which is good and still gets <laughs> from, from Budnet. I wouldn't change it for the world. You know, we just got promoted to the Premier League. So I think I could have sworn as much as I wanted. Yes. We certainly went to you for that, but yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, so you got promoted to the Premier League and, you know, you entered the, the pre-season. And then after being a massive part of the success, winning the JPT, back-to-back promotions, Adkins brings in a host of new players like, I don't know, Jay Rodriguez and, and Stephen Davis, Klein, Yoshida, Ramirez. Was he straight with you when he decided to loan you to Brighton or was it your decision for more playing time? No, Nigel was was really good with me. Look, um, we had a really good relationship, me and Nigel. Um, and I went back pre-season um, and probably got myself in the best condition I'd ever been up to in that point. Um, work didn't go away on holiday in the summer. Uh, like I mentioned, my wife was heavily pregnant, so we, we had my first son. Um, and didn't go away. So I was in the gym as much as I possibly could. I was in the training ground doing extra training. Um, so came back in really good condition. Had a really, really good pre-season. Felt really good. My form was good in pre-season. But the club had made some signings. You know, Jack Cork, Morgan Sliding were getting a little bit more experience. They were coming into their prime. So I knew that was going to be difficult. Stephen Davis had just come in. James Ward-Prowse was was coming through and was going to be pushed by the football club and completely understood that. Um, so I knew it was going to be difficult for me. So I was just trying to control the controllables in terms of every opportunity I got, just play well. Every day in training, train well. And if I get a chance, I get a chance. If I don't, I don't. Now, I knew things weren't quite going as well as I, as maybe I wanted them to be when Nigel mentioned to me that you mentioned at the start of the show, it's quite interesting, my squad number was going to change. So I wasn't going to be number 14 anymore, um, which obviously gives you an indication that I'm not quite as um, important anymore. Um, so that was the first time. Um, and just, you know, you have practice matches in training, you do shaping training. I wasn't in the starting 11 as much. Players were getting changed in and out. I wasn't getting um, 
you know, changed in and out to be tried in position. So I was fully aware that I potentially wasn't going to be part of the plans. Um, travel to the, the first game away at Man City. Um, in the squad thinking, right, okay, if I can get on the bench here, you know, I'm probably not going to, I'm not going to be in the starting 11, which is unfortunate. Um, but if I can get on the bench and get, my, you know, an appearance in the Premier League for Southampton, that would have been fantastic. But look, like I mentioned, Nigel was good with me. He was honest. He was up front. He, he, uh, he pulled me for a chat before the team meeting at the hotel and just said to me, look, I wasn't going to be involved today. I wasn't going to be on the bench. Um, I wasn't going to be his captain any longer. Adam Milano was going to be my captain, which I said to him was a really good decision um, because Adam was ready for it and was probably the best player in the team. And I think that added responsibility would have helped him. James Ward-Prowse was going to come in and replace me. Look, and you just... I'm not saying I was happy about it. I was frustrated, but it's football. Football's opinions, and you have to get on with it. So I took it on the chin. Um, watched the game, encouraged the players, was around the dressing room, tried to support them as much as I could, went in and trained the next couple of days, and then just generally had a, a little chat with Nigel, you know, every few days saying, look, what's happening? Is there potential for me to maybe go out and get some first-team football? Am I going to be part of this? Um, and he was honest with me. He said, look, I can't guarantee that you, you're going to play or going to be part of this, but I want you around the building, I want you around the group, and I want you... At the training ground set an example like you would if you were playing or you weren't playing, which, look, I was grateful for, but I wanted to play football. Um, I'd got so close to, to the Premier League. I wanted to fulfil that dream and it, I didn't think it was going to happen at Southampton. Um, so there was a, a few approaches by football clubs. Um, Southampton didn't accept them, which was tough as well. Um, but then, you know, I was fortunate enough that Brighton came calling and it was a club that had unfinished business with um, and I wanted to go back and kind of prove myself as, as a Brighton player. So when that opportunity came up, Nigel helped me in terms of, because the relationship between Southampton and Brighton as clubs wasn't the best at that time. Um, so it wasn't the easiest deal to get over the line, but Nigel helped with that. So I'd be forever grateful with that. And um, and that's football and you, and you move on. But you know, I never say a bad word about Southampton, loved every minute of the football club. Never say a bad word about Nigel because he helped me and his opinions. He's got to do his job and he's got to put out the best team he thinks gonna are going to win a football match. And I wasn't part of that at the time. Such professionalism there. That's a, that's, that's really really good story. Um, w- were you excited or apprehensive uh, given you know your celebration when you scored against them? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, no, look, I was I was okay with it. I learned when I made the celebration of Brighton, that was just out of emotion and the way I'd left the football club. Um, I was a lot younger then as well. Um, I'd grown up by the time I'd gone back, and um, uh, I got some really really good advice actually when I went back to the football club from from an ex player saying that there's going to be a you know a fifty fifty opinion on you coming back because of the way you left the football club um, and the way that you celebrated, but obviously they're going to respect that you've now moved on and become a better player and have just been promoted to the Premier League and that's what Brighton want to do. So he said that the best thing you can do is do an interview and come out and apologise for for your actions and and that's what I did and you know I came out and apologised for for the celebrations in the local paper, done a an in depth interview um, and just asked for the chance to prove myself as a player from neutral, to be honest, judge me on who I am and the player I am now. And the Brighton fans were brilliant. 
they were really, really good with me. They gave me that opportunity. Um, and hopefully I replayed them with the, the performances because we had a really, really good season. Um, you know, we got to the playoffs. We lost to Crystal Palace, unfortunately, which is a local derby. But, you know, we should have gone up that year. We had a really, really good team. I think we missed out on automatic promotion by two points. And we drew 16 games that season. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, we, we should have got promoted. But it was brilliant because I got the opportunity to play at the Amex, which was a stadium that I saw uh, as a course, 14 yeah. As a 14-year-old at Brighton, so to go back there and actually walk out for Brighton in that stadium um, was another box ticked, um, something that I wanted to achieve in my career. So it worked out okay in the end, and we had a really good season. Um, and then I went back to Southampton um, after the loan finished. Yeah, and then you went and joined Leicester, um, and, <laughs> and, and you had more success. Um, and you won the championship, um, and you entered the Premier League with them. I think, did you did you work under Claudio Ranieri? Yes, yeah, I worked under Claudio. So what we was had he that. like? Great. I had I had two seasons under Nigel Pearson, um, which was fantastic. Uh, brilliant manager, really was, and um, had real success there. Unfortunately, then he left the club and. And Claudio came in, um, and Claudio, nice guy, really, really nice guy, intelligent man, you know, huge experience um, within the game at the top flight, managed some some big clubs, and um, nice guy, you know, uh, worked you hard in training. Training sessions were long, maybe not quite as intense as we were used to, but they were long and they were detailed, and it obviously helped the football club because they went on to win the Premier League. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, a good guy, and, um, worked under him for about three months before I left to go on loan to, to Sheffield United and, you know, didn't what, didn't encourage me to leave, um, to be honest, wanted me around the group. Um, but again, I wanted to play football. You know, that was probably one of my assets and probably one of my downfalls as well. You know, I wanted to play football. I was a, I didn't class myself as a professional footballer unless you're playing football. You know, I didn't want to sit in the squads. I didn't want to just sit around the training ground. I wanted to enjoy match days and, and play. So, you know, to start with, when I asked to go on loan from Leicester, they refused and wouldn't allow me to go. Um, I signed for for Sheffield United, um, I think, on, on loan um, to start with because the deal didn't happen in the window because Leicester wouldn't allow it to happen. So, no, Claudia, really nice guy. Um, and done a brilliant job there. And the best thing he ever done at Leicester um, was come in and not change a lot because we'd had the success the season before where we'd won eight out of the last ten games to stay in the Premier League. Um, we'd really found our feet in the Premier League and he came in and he wanted to change things. Um, but the assistant manager stayed um, and had a really good conversation. We as players had a good conversation with the manager and just, again, asked for the opportunity to prove to him that this was the best way for this squad to play. Um, and credit to him, he went with it and we won games, so we stuck with it. So um, brilliant guy, really good. I mean, he's one of um, a number of fantastic managers that you've had the pleasure of working with. Um, I mean, you said before that Nigel Pearson was the best manager you worked under. I mean, what, what was it about his management style that stood out from the rest? His honesty, um, his man management with the players was, was fantastic. He's a scary dude, by the way. <laughs> Do you know yes. what? A lot of people right. say it to me, but he, he, I understand what you say. He's got a presence. Um, he's got, he's got authority. I don't think he's scary at all. He's just very passionate about what he, he, he thinks. Um, he'll give his opinion and he'll give his honest opinion. And I think some sometimes people don't like that, but 
I like that. The players like that because you always knew where you stood with Nigel, you know. And if he walked into a room, um, like I say, the atmosphere um, changed, but in a good way. There wasn't fear. You just knew the manager was in the in the room. You knew that when he watched training, the standard of training would would go up. You know, he in terms of training, we'd go out and we'd do the warm up with the sports scientists and the fitness coaches and the assistant manager and the coach. And then Nigel would come out about 20 minutes later and the session would just go up a level. You know, you knew the manager was there watching. He had that presence about him and um, just a really honest, straight talking guy and, and knew his football. You know, his detail was brilliant in football. Um, his recruitment in football was was good. Um, so, yeah, love working under Nigel. I really, really did learn a lot of, off him. Um, not only as a footballer, but as a person as well. Still speak to him now, so he's a good guy. Um, really, really enjoyed working under him. Just wanted to talk about um, life after football. I mean, considering your podcast, that's what it's all about. And um, our previous guest on, on the show, former captain, um, Klaus Sundukvam, I mean, he's been really frank about how badly uh, he took early retirement and just how there's a lack of support for exiting the game. Um, you yourself... So, did you when did, did you begin to start thinking about making plans for retirement at any point? Well, yeah, I mean, I always had a plan that I was going to play. My plan was to try and play till I was forty years old. That was always my plan. Um, I was always fit. I'm still fit now, physically fit. Um, you know, I was never blessed with pace, so I was never going to lose my pace. But I was always fit and could get around the pitch. Um, but I wasn't ready for. The mental fatigue from the game um, and, you know, the loan period I had at Sheffield United, which didn't go well at all for myself as a, individually and as a team. Uh, we really, really underachieved. Um, the criticism hit me hard because, um, it, you know, it was directed to me personally, not just as, as a player. And that was hard to take. Um, we just had our third son. Um, when my loan finished there and my contract finished at Leicester and I decided to take three, three months out of the game, um, which was a, a naive decision at the time, thinking that I can take three months out. I'll just come back into the game. There'll still be clubs and offers because there was offers that summer for me to take. And I just said I needed a rest, but I was tired from all the traveling. I was tired of being away from the family. Um, like I mentioned, the season had not going well and I just needed a break from it. Um, but I took a break. Um, then took a longer break, then didn't get back in, um, couldn't find a, uh, um, a club that really suited me, wasn't willing to leave home again and travel, so that reduced my opportunities. Um, and then kind of fell into a bit of a, a dark hole, if, if I'm honest. Um, lost a bit of my, well, lost a lot of my purpose, um, lost a lot of um, my direction in life. Um, and that was... That was tough to take, you know, as a footballer, I'd left school. You think you go to school at, what, five years old, you're, you have structure every day. You're told what to do. I left school at 16. I went into professional football. I had structure every day. I was told what to do, where to be, how to dress, what to do. And then suddenly I was out in the real world with real flexibility and freedom in my life, which seemed like a brilliant thing, but I wasn't ready for it. I needed the structure. I had no structure to my life. Started drinking a little bit more. Never been a big drinker at all in my life, but was bored and didn't have any purpose. So started to drink and um, that affected me. Not in terms of I was drinking every day, but um, when I was low, 
Um, I turned to drink to try and help me feel better about myself. Um, so I thought I was prepared for after the game, um, but I really, really wasn't. Uh, um, it's taken me a long time to get over it, to be honest. And I'd probably just say um, I'm only probably over it now, if I'm honest. You know, the last year has been brilliant for me, but it's taken me probably three years to get to this, three or four years to actually get to this point where um, I don't feel the guilt of walking away from the game because, you know, I walked away from the game. There wasn't an injury. Um, I was physically fit. I was just mentally drained and I felt that guilt for, for a long time um, of walking away from the game because I loved it. I really, really did. Um, but lost my identity a bit and, and that was, that was tough to take it, if I'm honest. Um, but the last year has been brilliant for me. You know, I really found myself again and probably understand myself again for the, for the first time. So, um, yeah, it's been challenging. I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely, um, good to have, have that purpose. I mean, um, a few years back, um, you said you were doing your coaching practice. I mean, is, is moving to coaching still part of the plan? Well, I, I was loan manager at Leicester City, um, I think it was a year after, 18 months after I finished playing, um, was loan manager, which is a brilliant role. You know, you look after the players that go on loan, you go and watch them play, you go and watch them train, you give them advice. You do video clips, you give them analysis. Absolutely love that. So, you know, I started and obviously you still train with the, the under 23s at Leicester because like I mentioned, I was still fit. I could still play, um, but didn't want to really. Um, and started doing my coaching badges, you know, took my level two, passed that, took my level B, um, was halfway through that, really, really enjoying it, um, was continuing with that. Um, and then unfortunately my wife had to have a, a back operation. Um, so I had to give the role up at Leicester. We moved back down south again, um, away from Leicester, um, and became like a full-time dad for, for three to four months while, while my wife recovered. Um, so left that role and, and never finished my coaching badges. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I've made a choice to have three children. Uh, so I want to be around for their lives. Um, I want to be a dad to them. And I think if you go into coaching or management, that's going to be tough. I think if you go into that profession, you've got to be wholehearted with it. You've got to give it every fault. You've got to give it every minute. It's not like a player where you can just go in, train, go home or just turn up for a match day. I think there's so much more to coaching and management. So if I did go into it, I don't think I'd be doing it justice. I don't think I'd be doing myself justice. And I don't think it'd be fair for my family that have sacrificed so much for me during my playing career to then say, oh, by the way, I'm just going to go and be a coach now um, and see you all later. in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I've made a choice and I love being a dad. It's one of the, the best things in my life. Um, so I'm happy being a father. If I didn't have children, yeah, 100%, I think I'd be a coach. Bah, that's a good choice, I think. Well, I mean, definitely no dad would, though. Uh, been, been keeping very fit and uh, you've, of course, got the... Dean Hammond Elite Fitness uh, on the way. Yeah, fitness is definitely a major part of your life. It, it is huge. Making us all look bad, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if I'm honest, it's probably saved me. Um, and that sounds extreme. I don't mean save me, but it's 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 kept me. It's got me to the position I am now. Uh, if I'm honest, um, exercise is a huge part of my life and builds that foundation of my day. Um, keeps away my demons in my, in my head. So exercise has been a huge benefit to me. And I've always loved it. You know, you've seen me play as a player. A massive part of my game was was my fitness. 
um, and just continue continued that on and never got out of the routine um, and and love it and I think it could just help your life so much. It helps with your thinking. It gives you purpose. Um, it gives you that routine and structure I mentioned and and that's what Dean Hand Elite Fitness is, is all about. You know, it's it's what it's it's fitness from home. So you can do it in the safety and the comfort of your own home. Um, it's to just build that that foundation of your day and and help you achieve something straight away and, and keeping you not only physically but mentally fit. And I think that's so important in in the modern day. It, it really really is. Um, and I love it. Look, I love it. I couldn't live without my fitness now, and it's part of my daily routine. So very very passionate about what I do. Sign me up. Sign me up. I need to get into something <laughs> like that. I need to do it. Um, can we can we discuss the current side? Um, because I mean we had a great start to the season and it's kind of unravelled around Christmas time and it hasn't got any better really. What what do you put the major dip in form down to? Is it just the you know the squad depth or you know injuries? I think it is. I think it seems like a really simple answer, but I think it is a simple answer. I think it's down to the fact of the suspensions, the injuries, the injuries to the type of players as well. Um, the the squad being stretched um, and the way look I love the way the manager approaches the game I love the way he puts his team out to win the game you know high intensity high press fast football attacking mm. football try and win the game but at some point that's going to take an effect on individual players and there's going to be injuries there's going to be suspensions because you're trying to win the ball back so much so there's going to be missed time tackles. And I think the squad has just been stretched. I think there's some talented younger players coming through, but I don't think they're ready yet to play at the level the manager wants. And I think that potentially frustrates him, even though he's given them the opportunity and it's credit to him because you've got to be brave to do that. But I think it's been forced upon him a little bit um, earlier than he would have wanted to do it. Um, obviously, there's... Like I don't know the situation in the club, but it looks like the owner potentially wants to sell or is not willing to invest the money that the manager wants. So that's difficult. Um, but look, Southampton have been, the first half of the season have been fantastic. And, and the performances, there's not been many performances that have been that bad. You know, I still work for, for Southampton now and do the, the, um, the TV stuff for them and I watch every game. So, the performances have not been bad. There's been spells in games where it's been difficult to watch, where they've lost the game and potentially not reacted to disappointment. And what I mean by that, you know, when a goal's been disallowed by VAR or a penalty's not been given or a, or a goal's been given against Southampton when it shouldn't have done, I think the players have not reacted too well to that. Um, but I think this Southampton team, when they've got their strongest team out, and I think they've proved this. They can beat anyone in this league. Mm. They can. They're, they're fantastic. The manager is brilliant. They're in an FA Cup semi-final. Let's be honest, they're pretty much safe. One more win and maybe a draw would guarantee safety. Yes, that's not how probably how the, the fans want to want to see that because we were so high in the league, you know, top of the league, fourth place around Christmas, beating Liverpool. Um, you know, there was a bit more excitement, but. Look, I'm a Southampton fan now. I love the football club. And if you'd said to me at the start of the season, we'd be in the Premier League next season and we'd win the FA Cup, I think most of us would take that. So I think we just have to maybe bring it back down to a little bit of reality, if that makes sense. But also, it's good to get excited. You know, and it's good to, it's good to 
want your team to do better. But I think, in answer to your question, I think the squad's just a little bit too small um, in terms of the way the manager wants to play and the way the manager wants to train the group. Um, there, there needs to be a bit more quality in depth. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we had that, that major game the week before last against Brighton. Uh, it was crucial for both clubs. And Brighton fighting a relegation battle, Saints being drawn into one. But um, what was it like was it like for you watching a game like that? You know, so important for both Brighton and Saints. Yeah, it was, it was a tough one because obviously I want both of them to win and obviously that's not possible. Um, but it was... Uh, like I've watched a lot of Brighton this season as well and, and covered their games. And they're another team. They're brilliant. They really are. I know that sounds silly. Graham Potter's fantastic. I love that. Oh, they're, they're, you know, they're fourth or fifth bottom. But their performances, they're a challenge for anyone. They're competitive against anyone. Yes, they need a goal scorer. Um, they need to be a little bit more disciplined, defending sometimes. But the brand of football they play... So I knew that was going to be a really tough game for Southampton. And I said it to a lot of people, look, this is no walk in the park. Brighton had lost the last three games. They'd lost to Palace, West Brom and Leicester before going into that Southampton game. But they played particularly well against Leicester. And I'd been at the Amex to actually watch that one. And they should have beaten Leicester. Um, and again, like you mentioned Graham Potter there. His tactics and his change at half-time won Brighton the game. Yeah. It did. It, you know, it was, a, it was a false change. You know, Dan Byrne came off injured. Um, they made a substitution. Shakiri came on, who was actually a striker, but played on the left like wing-back. Gross went as a right wing-back. And Southampton just couldn't get to grips with it, really. Um, and Brighton dominated the second half and, and were worthy winners. So, yeah, it was difficult to watch because, like I mentioned, I want both teams to get the three points to stay in the Premier League. But I thought... If I'm honest, Brighton fully deserved the three points. Sadly, yes. Um, like you mentioned, we have an FA Cup semi-final to look forward to. Um, against another one of your old clubs. Um, do you think we've got a chance of beating Leicester? Hundred percent. Yes, definitely. I think that's a. I honestly think that's a fifty-fifty game. I know Leicester are third in the league and are having a great season, but like I said before, on any day, Southampton, if they play their best, they can beat anyone. They really, really can. And whenever you're playing at Wembley, it's a 50-50 game. You know, when we played Carlisle at Wembley, it was a 50-50 game. It wasn't when we were 2-0 up, but at the beginning of the game, it's a 50-50 game because you're playing at Wembley. You know, there's nerves. It's different. Um, you know the importance of the game. There's just something different about it and there's something special about it. And, and Southampton are capable of beating anyone in the league. Now, Hopefully the players are going to be fit. You know, can Danny Ings be back by then? Hopefully. Um, the performance against Bournemouth was brilliant. I know it's against Bournemouth, a championship team, but them games sometimes are even harder because it's almost a free hit for Bournemouth. <laughs> yeah. Southampton completely dominated that game. I mean, Stuart Armstrong is, is some player. I mean, what a player he is. And mm. When he's on form, Southampton play really, really well. So... Look, I really like the Southampton team, um, and I think they've got every chance of beating Leicester. So it's going to be a tight, tight game. Um, it really is, and I think that game could go either way. Oh my God, I would just love a, a, an FA Cup final again. It would just be—I say, I say again—it's been a long time, but yeah, it would just—it would mean so much. It'd be amazing. Um, we've got a few quick-fire questions for you now. Give us your five-a-side Saints team from the players that you played with. <laughs> Quick fire! Oh my word! Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Saints team I played in. Kelvin Davis in goal, obviously. Um, Jose Fonte uh, at the back. I'd have to go Adam Lallana in midfield. Um, oh, this is tough. Because, I mean, I'd want to go Morgan Snyder, but Jason Punch in the in in midfield would be unbelievable. So I'd go Adam Lallana and Jason Punch in the in the midfield. And then you've got to go... Ricky Lambert. Favourite goal? Leeds at home. Favourite midfield partner? Tough. I've got to put, I've got to pick one, right? Yeah. But it's, it's between Morgan and Jack. Love playing with both of them. Um, but I just say Morgan because he's just gone to, on to probably have a little bit of a better career than Jack. And that's harsh to sound Jack because he's had a brilliant career. But, you know, Morgan going to Man United and playing for France. I'd have to say Morgan. Yeah. I love Jack Hawk, by the way. I still do. What a player. Mm. Nice guy. Nice, one of the nicest guys in football. Who's the sweariest player in the Saints dressing room? On the pitch or off the pitch? Um, give me both. On the pitch, probably me. <laughs> <laughs> and off the pitch, probably you. Nah, not <laughs> off the pitch. Uh, it's on depends if I had a drink in me. had a drink in me, probably me. Um, who would swear a lot? Oh, David Connolly. Really? Oh, <laughs> oh. Like, honestly... I, I know he wasn't. He was struggled to keep his fitness at Southampton, but one of the best players I played with. I mean, he was close to getting into that five-a-side team. He was some player. He really, really was brilliant player. Um, but yeah, had a strong opinion as well. Really strong. You know, in the dressing room, he's he had real standards, real standards. And if he just had something to say, he'd say it. And he'd say he always it. he always come across as like a quiet guy that just. Nah. Like, yeah, no. I don't, don't know what. If he is, said uh, something, he said it with real authority, and there was a few swear words in there. So no. <laughs> okay. Um, prime Dean Hammond. You got three identical contracts in front of you: Ralph Saints, Rogers as Foxes, or Potter's Seagulls. Who do you sign for? <laughs> oh wow! Uh, I still say Southampton. Hey. Yes, correct answer. <laughs> Um, have you had any nicknames throughout your career that have stuck? <laughs> no, not really. Um, Dino, obviously, was a very simple one. Hamo, I had. Um, and that's it, really. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing major, really, if I'm honest. So, yeah, a bit boring on that side. Bow legs, um, I had bow legs once, you know, my legs have obviously got, I've got bow legs, so. <laughs> Yeah, that was, but that's not really a nickname, is it? That didn't really carry, to be honest. Okay. Um, yeah, we've got a question that we ask um, everyone here. Um, would you rather be twice the height of Yannick Vestergaard or half the height of Carl Walker Penis? <laughs> um, twice the height of Vestergaard. <laughs> Good choice. Um, okay. Um, would you rather rather have a saint tattoo on your face or a pumpy tattoo on your ass? Ah, oh, saint tattoo on my face. Yes, again, that was the right answer. Are you still in contact with any of your ex-teammates? Uh, to be honest, not that many. Um, occasional, you know, texts and, and, and uh, a conversation here and there, but not seeing any of them um, for a while. I still live locally close to Dan Harding, so I speak to Dan Harding now and again. Um, but a few texts, you know, I spoke, spoke to Adam Lana when he signed for, for Brighton. Um, but the other boys, you know, Calv, probably about a year ago, so, you know, I see David Connolly uh, now and again when we're doing both doing a bit on talk sport. Um, so not massively, to be honest. I think that's quite a, a common theme in football. Um, you know, you, when you see each other, it's like you, you, 
you've never been away from each other. Um, but we've all got family, friends, other commitments now. Um, so yeah, like the odd text, I speak to, you know, I spoke to a little text from Lee Barnard the other day and things like that. So, um, not massively, but it's great when we do catch up at, at some point, if you have something at Southampton or, um, there's a meeting or a meal or something, that's brilliant. Um, okay. So we've got some, um, some discord questions. These are all from our, um, from our most valued listeners. Uh, the first one, not very slim Jim says, uh, what's it like to play against the team you've previously played for? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I used to love playing against my old teams. I don't know if I perform my best, but um, you yeah, used to really enjoy it. It's, um, it's difficult because obviously you've got the love for, for that previous club and, and most clubs that I left, I left on a, on a good note and with good relationships. So it's tough from that point of view, but you've always got a point to prove as a, as a footballer. So I used to enjoy it. Okay, uh, Tim asks, what was your favourite restaurant in Southampton? <laughs> Can't answer that. Um, I don't know, if no? I'm honest. No, because, put it this way, if, well, I didn't go out that much. We were quite, a, um, like me and my wife, um, obviously had kids and stuff, um, kind of kept ourselves to ourselves, to be honest. And when I went out with the lads, which we did a lot, I was pissed, so I probably wouldn't remember. <laughs> 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 I don't really know, to be honest. I <laughs> can't answer that, sorry. Okay, uh, he also says, um, can you compare life in Brighton to Southampton? Very vibrant, both, both cities. Um, you loved, you know, but I've never, I've never been like a, um, a city person, if I'm honest. You know, when I was in Southampton, I used to live out in, in West Wellow. Um, so that oh, yeah. Country in the New Forest, um, and then when I'm obviously down where I am now in Brighton, we're we're in a village, we're in a village um, as as well. So, you know, I'm not massively for going into Brighton, or I wasn't massive for going into to Southampton, to be honest. But very similar, you know, Brighton's pretty unique, if I'm honest. Um, very multicultural, um, lots of different personalities, and, and but Southampton's very very vibrant and a brilliant city, you know. Um, I've got amazing memories of living in Hampshire, you know, with, with my family. My first son was born in Hampshire. Um, we loved living in Hampshire. Probably wish we'd never left, to be honest. Um, but, um, yeah, very, very similar. Uh, Steve asks, uh, what's your view on leadership in our current side? And is there natural leaders within this current squad? That's hard for me to judge because I don't know the players. I'm not within the dressing room. All I can judge it on is the players and how I see them play. Um, and you can have leaders that um, lead in different ways. You can have some leaders that are very good at leading off the pitch and in the dressing room, which obviously as fans and ex-players and people outside the club don't see. Um, and then you have players, for example, you know, a James Ward-Prowse, leads by example with his performances um, and that's what I try to do as captain you know lead by example and hopefully people follow you so you know James Ward-Prowse I think has had a fantastic season I think he's a brilliant captain in terms of the way he performs I think that armband I've mentioned before has given him that added responsibility and has helped his game I think he's been brilliant this year he really has um, you know other leaders Danny Ings leads by example as well in terms of his work rate and the goals he scores um, you know, Ryan Bircham, uh, left back, very, very reliable. So he leads in that respect. Um, Vestergaard, uh, Bednarak, you know, they lead with their performances as well. I wouldn't see, you know, Oriol Romeo, you know, leads by his examples, but 
I'm not on the pitch, so it's hard for me to judge in terms of what, what is said and what the, the communication is and what the vocabulary is between the players. So difficult to see. All I can judge it was there's there's enough players within that team that lead by example with their performances. That says that your aggressiveness on the field was vital. Um, are current players missing that desire today or have the rules changed so much that players try to tackle less aggressively? I think the game's changed. Um, I think you can't quite tackle as you used to done. That's probably because of VAR. Um, you're never going to be yet. You know, when I played, you could get away with a few challenges because it was all on the eye of the referee. It was on his opinion. And if you didn't see something, um, then you get away with it. But VAR will call it back. So it's difficult now. And the rules have changed as well in terms of leaving the ground, following through. And I don't quite get the following through one because when you go into a tackle, you can't suddenly stop. You can't pull out. Yeah. Just evaporate. Yeah. <laughs> Your momentum takes you through, so I don't think what you're supposed to do with your training leg, you can't tuck it behind your other leg. So it's an interesting one, but I think the game's changed, and I miss it, to be honest. I miss seeing them tackles because, you know, there wasn't any worse injuries when I played than there is in, in you know, the game today. So, you know, we used to tackle no players, used to intentionally hurt each other. I don't care what anyone says. I never came across players that were intentionally trying to hurt people, be competitive and try and win the ball, but never to try and really injure someone. So I think it's missed from the game. And I think if I'm honest, I mean, you guys are telling me better. I think the fans miss it as well because, oh, yeah. you know, them, them tackles, it lifts the crowd. You can lift the performance. You can lift a, an atmosphere in front, in, in, in the stadium if someone makes a big tackle. So I miss seeing it. I miss that competitive side. And I think that's, Personally, down to down to VAR, which I'm not a huge fan of either. Yeah, you must have um, you must have played just about every league ground throughout your career. Um, Dan Rideout asks, what was your favourite ground to play at? Um, well, obviously, you know, take it all. I'm not going to obviously. St Mary's was was unbelievable. Used to love playing there as a, as a home player. Um, that's very very special. You know, you walk out as captain. Playing for for the home team at St Mary's was, you know, when I played there it was a full house every week. So, used to love that. Used to love playing there. Very similar. Used to love playing at the Amex and um, uh, uh, Leicester as well. So, they were very special grounds for me. But, you know, playing at Wembley was amazing. But playing at Anfield, I always wanted to play at Anfield. It was a ground that you know has got such history behind it. You know, Liverpool are a massive football club. Um, you know, I've played at Old Trafford, Stamford Bridge, played at most grounds, but playing at Anfield was special. And just, you know, before kickoff, hearing them fans sing, you'll never walk alone and, um, actually soaking up that atmosphere just, just inspired me. So I would say Anfield. Yeah. Okay. We've got Saints News now on Instagram. He says, uh, what music did you listen to to get yourself ready for a game? And did you have any superstitions before or after? Superstitions, I used to put my left shin pad on before my right. Don't know why. Don't ask me why. Um, I used to also put, if you look at the photos, I used to put tape around my wrist. There was nothing under my wrist. Um, just used to put tape um, on my left wrist. Um, so it was a left shin pad on and then tape around my um, left wrist. That was my superstition, I suppose. Didn't probably realise it as much, but I did it every game, so it must have been a superstition. Um, and music, 
you know, you know, you look at players now, they all have their own individual music with their headphones in. That didn't happen when we, we were in the dressing room. Um, I'm trying to think it was in Danny Fox, I think was in charge of the music. So anything that Danny put on, I used to listen to. Um, but you know, in the, I don't know if you've been into the dressing rooms at, at St. Mary's. Yeah, you know, I big, have, yeah. Big dressing room. There's the room out the back. You know, I used to warm up in the room out the back, really, uh, with the, with the ball and be on the bike and stretching. So I wasn't actually in the main dressing room that much to enjoy the music. So, um, anything was on, uh, but look, I didn't, I didn't need music to get me motivated. So it didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, right. I think that's it, Dean. Just about, yeah. Yeah. Um, that- Fantastic, yeah. Yeah, I just want to um, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's been it's been a pleasure, and I also want to thank you for all the all the memories that you've given us during you know the best spell of being a Saints fan. You know the Johnstons paint, the, the double promotions. You were a massive part of our success, and you're thought of so highly from all the fans to this day. So yeah, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Um, thank you for your kind words. You know, I, I love playing for the football club and. That it was my pleasure. It was, it really was. And uh, I thank the fans for the support they gave us as a, as a team because, you know, I think that's the most important thing. And, you know, fans being missing from the stadiums at the moment is tough. But, you know, um, it was a pleasure to play at St Mary's in that atmosphere and play for the football club and, and be successful. So great memories. So I'm grateful for that. Cheers a million, Dean. My pleasure, gents. No problem at all. Such a positive time to, to, to go over and, yeah, such a positive person and um, you're just an ideal interviewee. Um, I enjoy listening to the uh, the Saints, the, the post-game analysis you do with Kendi. I listen to that every week and, oh, yeah, always like hearing uh, you speak on that and it's just, uh, yeah, it's just surreal to have you on the show. No problem at all. No, I love, I love doing that show. It's brilliant. And Ken's is fantastic. So thank you, you very take much. Care. See you later. Have Bye. a Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.